This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. It's always a pleasure to be back here, see some familiar faces and also some new ones. This series, as you know, is on daily life practice, is that's what it's called, something um, very, very pragmatic topics. And so it's a topic for tonight is money, not a common one in our world to talk about. And when I was confirming with Shyla that I would give this talk, I commented that I was going to speak on the challenging topic of money. And Shyla's return email said, it's a great topic. Who doesn't love money? (laughs) (laughs) So I'll start with a few few stories. Um, There once was a person, I don't know this person, but I understand it's a real story, uh, who had... Uh, She was wealthy and had many different houses. She worked as a financial consultant or something like that. And she decided at some point to make a practice of generosity. And she gave away nearly all of her assets to Dharma people and Dharma causes and various things. And then she got cancer. But luckily she still had one house that she could live in. And when her health was stabilized, she had to go back to work to her old job uh, because she needed the money and the health care. But she commented that she was so glad she had done that. She wouldn't have changed anything about giving away nearly all of her assets, even though she was then a little on the edge when she got the cancer. So that's one. There's also a story, not from the Theravadan tradition, of a monk who, he was a, originally just a, a layman, and he had a number of businesses. Um, and then he decided to become a monk, and he decided to keep his businesses. Now, you couldn't do this if you were a Theravadan monk, but in this other tradition he could. So he kept them all. He had other people, stewards, running them, basically. And he was also kind of weird in that whenever there were offerings being made to the monastery, he would rush to the front of the line and try to, you know, get the most and uh, kind of hoard things up. And people um, really criticized that. And it was sort of frowned upon because, you know, that's not very seemly for a monk. But then a flood came and wiped out the whole town. And uh, people were out on the streets and watching their houses float away. And the next day, the very next day, um, big carts came rolling up the road from the nearby city, and he had paid for the entire rebuilding of the town. So what did he know, perhaps? (laughs) And then another real-world story is of a person who really wanted to donate to the monasteries. Um, This was in Japan, and they were just so inspired, but didn't have a lot of money, and imagined themselves being able to give a great offering to uh, one of the monasteries. And so with a very long-term eye, 
um, they figured out that they'd probably be good in the publishing business and uh, went to work very hard, entrepreneur kind of thing, and built a huge publishing house through totally traditional business methods, which in Japan are quite strict and serious, um, right there in the whole capitalist market. And sure enough, they were successful, eventually came to fruition, and then they were able to give a lot to the monastery but their path along that was to be a hard co- hardcore capitalist business person. So you can think about these stories and how you relate to them. Money is always part of a bigger picture. It's always something that we're doing in our life is related to that, but it's the life that you know, we have to keep in focus still. But it is an important part Uh, As spiritual people, we may wish that we could kind of ignore it or something. Um, We may be unwilling to look at it squarely or talk about it, but that means that we're missing something because money is an important part of our lives. Why did I somewhat unconsciously write in my email, this is the challenging topic of money? I don't think that was very, I don't think that was very conscious that I wrote that. I just figured, oh yeah, money, challenging topic. So I feel like I need to offer some caveats before I can even really dive into this topic. There there are at least two problems with talking about money in the Dharma related to this culture. (laughs) The first is that money in America is actually something of a taboo. And, you know, we we think, why would that be? We're a capitalist culture. I don't think it's true. You can see it anywhere on TV. But... Somewhere hovering underneath that, we are not so comfortable with acknowledging class differences because that threatens our country's image of freedom and of the American dream and other things. We like to believe that it's all available for everyone. But there are classes. There are. And so this taboo spills into Dharma groups and it feels awkward to bring up money. We also have the um, Judeo-Christian tradition in our culture, whether or not you participate in that. It's there. And it has, you know, I'm not, I don't want to horribly oversimplify, but it does have a certain glorification of poverty. Uh, Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. I might have something to say about that later. Um, But um, it's important to note that in the Buddhist teachings, they don't say this, actually. Um, We'll see what they do say in a moment, but they don't don't have that inherent um, kind of statement like that. But nonetheless, even in Buddhism, we have these images of Theravadan monastics who are very, or the strictest of the monastics. They don't use money. And so we might get the impression that money is dirty somehow. It's for lay people who aren't as spiritually advanced, something like that. So I felt like I needed to kind of name these things, not because I have any way of addressing them or intention to address them in this talk, but just to uh, name them in the way that that kind of pops the bubble a little bit. So I think we can talk about this. And if there's a bit of an awkward feeling... Well, that's a feeling to notice. (laughs) Noticing awkwardness. Where is that in my body? (laughs) 
And it's also important to see all the views, identities, and emotions that are wrapped up with thoughts about money. This is actually a very charged idea. Money is an idea, by the way. (laughs) But it's a very charged one. So what did the Buddha say about money and wealth? Let's look at that a little bit. Much of what he said is about actually about our relationship to money. And this is helpful to realize because it allows us to consider that these teachings are actually relevant for us. I mean, it would be a very, um, I think, um, cogent argument to say the economic system that we have here is completely, completely different than what there was in India in 2,500 you know, 2,500 years ago. And, you know, we have global capitalism, and that just was not even an idea then. But because the Buddha talked a lot about our relationship to money, and, you know, that's, of course, where the suffering or the freedom is, then we can say, okay, you know, we too have a relationship to money and wealth. We have that relationship both on the personal level and in our broader political and economic views. We have multiple different ways that we think about money. And this is where the suffering or the freedom lies, as I said. So let's look at that. I started going through the suttas, and I said, what is in here? And um, first I discovered that Well, I had seen many of these teachings before. I somewhat integrated them for this talk. So the first idea I want to mention is that basically that wealth is okay. (laughs) There's a sutta um, called the Discourse, uh, well, it's a discourse to a person from the Kolian clan that is about four ways to live well in this life and four ways to ensure a good next life. Very practical. Those of you taking the Anguttara course, you may have read this one. So they're very simple. First way to live well in this life is to do your work well. Be skilled at your craft, arrange things well so that the work flows smoothly. So this means you can keep your appointments, you can order your stuff on time so that you have the materials to do your job, you can do the customer service correctly, all of that. So all the stuff around it, as well as being good at what you do. It's kind of basic work well. And then there's protection. So you protect your wealth. In this particular sutta, it says we should guard it against kings, thieves, fire, floods, and jealous relatives. (laughs) Just in case you wanted to know the main dangers to wealth um, in the Buddhist time. But we can find analogies to all those, right, in our time. And then the third is to have good friends, to hang out with people who, are, who have faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. So surround yourself with good people. And then the fourth is to maintain a balanced livelihood, which some, one person translates as living in tune, which I kind of like. And that's very pragmatic also. That's described as having an income that exceeds your expenditures. And that sounds practical. And uh, neither living in a miserly way nor an extravagant one, which is very interesting. I'm going to have some more to say about that later. So there's nothing in there about wealth being bad or that um, rich people are intrinsically suspect. Instead, wealth is something that can happen. (laughs) Wealth happens. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, but it's a conditioned thing in the world that 
some people are going to have wealth and that if you the idea is that if you do these four things you're more likely to have a nice uh, fairly uh, live well in this life you know that's and that's what the person asked the buddha it was a question someone came and said i'm a lay person i'm not going to i'm not going to ordain how should i live and this is what the buddha said so it's okay to cultivate and protect wealth and that's kind of the main message the, um, by the way, to the four ways to ensure a good next life are to develop good qualities of mind. Uh, so faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. You can imagine that since you're not taking your wealth with you into the next life, you have to <laughs> cultivate something a little deeper than that. So this seems pretty practical to me. The second thing, um, kind of theme, is hinted at at the end of this one is that wealth is to be used. It's actually to be used. It's a resource. And um, let me read something here from a conversation that King Pisenity had with the Buddha. So the king says, Just now, Lord, a money-lending householder died in Savati. I have come from conveying his heirless fortune to the royal palace, eight million in silver to say nothing of the gold. But even though he was a money-lending householder, his enjoyment of food was like this. He ate broken rice and pickle brine. His enjoyment of clothing was like this. He wore three lengths of hempen cloth. His enjoyment of a vehicle was like this. He rode in a dilapidated little cart with an awning of leaves. (laughs) And the Buddha (laughs) hears this from the king and says, That's the way it is, great king. That's the way it is. When a person of no integrity acquires lavish, wealth, acquires lavish wealth, he doesn't provide for his own pleasure and satisfaction, nor for the pleasure and satisfaction of his parents, his wife and children, his slaves, servants, and assistants, or his friends. He doesn't institute for Brahmins and contemplatives offerings of supreme aim, heavenly, resulting in happiness. When his wealth isn't properly put to use, kings make off with it, or thieves make off with it, or fire burns it, or water sweeps it away, or hateful airs make off with it. Those five again. Thus his wealth, not properly put to use, goes to waste and not to any good use. So it's interesting, right? He says, if you're rich, don't live like a miser. Don't live like a pauper. You have this resource. It's got to be put to good use. Interesting message. Yet another sutta says... Uh, in case you wanted to then say, well, what are the good uses? There's one that lists the five good uses for wealth, um, similar to what were named in the other ones, supporting family and employees, supporting friends and associates, warding off calamities, performing the five oblations to relatives, guests, the dead, kings, and devas. (laughs) That's fairly culturally specific. And offerings to contemplatives, which is basically supporting the Dharma, very high merit. I'll have another comment on this sutta in a moment. And then just to throw one more thing at you about this, there's a a sutta called Causes of Downfall. And there's a whole bunch of stuff listed, but I'm going to read two of them. Though being well-to-do, not to support father and mother who are old and past their youth, this is a cause of one's downfall. To have much wealth and ample gold and food, but to enjoy one's luxuries alone... This is a cause of one's downfall. So he's very clear, I think, again and again, that it's fine to have the wealth, but 
Uh, it's not to be stored up, saved up, hoarded. And what he's, you know, what he's getting at is that we tend to have, we can very easily have an unwholesome relationship to our wealth. And that's what he's, you know, pointing us toward. Look at how you relate to this. So here's another conversation between King Pisenity and the Buddha. I guess they talked about wealth a lot. And so King Pisenity says, Just now, Lord, while I was alone in seclusion, this train of thought arose in my awareness. Few are those people in the world who, when acquiring lavish wealth, don't become intoxicated and heedless, don't become greedy for sensual pleasures, and don't mistreat other beings. Many more are those who, when acquiring lavish wealth, become intoxicated and heedless, become greedy for sensual pleasures, and mistreat other beings. And the Buddha says, that's the way it is, great king, that's the way it is. So, wealth is a little dangerous. It's something that has the potential to increase unwholesome mind states in people. And that was what concerned the Buddha. That was why it was, if you've got it, you've got to use it. Here are the five ways to use it. Please use it to support your friends and relatives. It's okay to protect it, to take care of yourself, but make offerings, etc. Just to get Jesus off the hook, um, (laughs) my sense is that this is probably behind Jesus' statement about the rich man going to heaven is not being able to get into heaven. Not so much that literally being rich is what prevents him, but I like to think that Jesus saw the same thing. And he said, a rich man like this, few are those who, when acquiring lavish wealth, are not going to fall into unwholesome mind states. So my guess is that there was more there than in that simple statement about the camel going through the eye of the needle. I like to think it's the same that what the Buddha was saying. Okay, so remember, there were those five good uses. You don't have to remember all of them, to which wealth can be put. Basically, it was supporting yourself and other people and making donations. I want to read the conclusion to that sutta after it lists the five things. It goes on to say, if a noble disciple's wealth is exhausted when he has utilized it in these five ways, he thinks, I have utilized wealth in these five ways and my wealth is exhausted. Thus he has no regret. But if a noble disciple's wealth increases when he has utilized it in these five ways, he thinks, I have utilized wealth in these five ways and my wealth is increased. Thus, either way, he has no regret. It's interesting, right? Is that basically, first of all, there are no promises. You know, wealth leads to more wealth or wealth leads to the end. You know, it, it's, it's a much bigger karmic issue than that. So he doesn't say anything about that. Giving wealth might just mean that it all goes away. Or giving wealth might lead to an increase. It's not... It's not really stated which way it's going to go. Instead, what we look at is the mind of the person who has used their wealth well. And it says, basically, we're offered, we're offered total equanimity. Oh, I gave all these offerings, used my wealth in these five ways, like the Buddha said, now it's gone. Oh, well. Or, you know, I used my wealth in these five ways, and, and it, uh, it increased. So basically, non-remorse, non-regret is one of the fruits of using wealth well, if one has a well-trained mind. 
And it's nice to know, apparently, the person is happy to know that their wealth has been put to the best possible use, such that it's not leading to harm. So I would like to invite us into a little um, personal reflection. So if you would, um, please close your eyes and get a little bit meditative on the inside. It'll be fairly short, but um, allow yourself to settle in. Feel yourself sitting and maybe thinking a little bit, opening your mind to the financial situation in your life. Just, you know, your money. Now feel, don't think about, feel in your body, feel into the following scenario. You go to your online banking site and you discover that all of your money is gone. It's just gone. The bank can't find it. There are no records. You have no money. What's happening in your body right now? In your thoughts? You have the clothes that you're wearing. You have the items in your house, but you have no money in the bank. Okay, so gently returning into the room, this may have given a glimpse to, into your relationship to money and you can see by what your mind did with that, if you allowed it. <laughs> um, there are various options, right? There's a greed, a greed type relationship. Um, more is better, how can I get money? First thing is, it's gone, how do I get more? Um, There's usually a connection between greed and fear because they actually come from the same part of the brain, interestingly. And so if the sense was, how do I get it? (laughs) Or there can actually be an aversive or hating type relationship to money. We might think, well, you know, like Shaila said, who doesn't love money? <laughs> but there can be, um, especially among spiritual folks, a little bit of a sense like, I don't want to deal with money. You know, it's, um, I want enough, I want enough, but otherwise I don't really want anything to do with it. I'm just going to give it to my financial advisor. Um, I'm just going to you know, look at it every now and then, but I don't want to deal with it. It's a little bit aversive. You know, it's not being willing to see it as a resource. How can I use this? Where, can I, where, where could I invest this that it would do good? How can I um, give more of this away in a skillful way? We can also have a diluted relationship to money, often about um, money says something about me, about my identity. I have, you know, because I have a certain amount or I have certain things that I got with it. Uh, many of us have this at least to some degree. And we may not be aware of it until... It's potentially not there. Uh, you know, while you're waiting for your next... If you're, if you're employed right now, you'd have to wait for your next paycheck if really all of your money was gone. 
and your friends invite you out for coffee and you can't go really because you don't have any cash in your wallet. You're always even using your credit card. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, little things like that says something about me. Or what about equanimity? Was it okay for you if it all went away? Oh, fine. I put it to the five good uses. Now it's all gone. Now I have no regret. Or, similarly, could you remain balanced if you suddenly got a lot of money? You know, winning the lottery is kind of the classic, but, you know, a big inheritance can come at an unexpected time for some people. And it sometimes you think, oh yeah, no problem, but it can be a really a life changer to have suddenly a lot of money when you didn't before. So here is where the suffering or the freedom lies in that what you felt in your body when you did that. What did the, what did the mind do with that? Here's a real life story written in a book so that the, the I is the author of the book. It's not that important who it was. I knew a man who lost a fortune suddenly and was penniless with a legal battle to fight and children to support. He found that he had another kind of wealth in the ties of affection and respect he had built up, wealth he would otherwise never have seen. Lawyers took on his case pro bono. The grocery store extended credit, the schools gave scholarships, and he got by on the wealth that was invisible before the money dried up. We might have more wealth than we think, actually. Or less. <laughs> so, um, the Buddha talked often about a series called Gratification, Danger, and Escape. And this is the um, kind of sequence of our understanding of and it was in his own experience, his own understanding of sensual pleasures in particular, but basically stuff that we might get attached to. Uh, he acknowledged that there is, um, there is gratification in things. That's why we get attached to them, because they are actually pleasant. They do actually provide us with something useful. Money is not something neutral. It's an attractive thing that's helpful and beneficial and supportive for us. So, naturally, we end up getting attached, right? But there is, he acknowledged, there is actual gratification. Um, But anything that we can get attached to, like that, carries also a danger. The danger, as noted earlier, is that we'll do harmful things or generate unwholesome mind states. That's one of the dangers of, of attractive things in general, and money in particular. And then also it's an area of uncertainty. And the other danger of things is that they are uh, inconstant or impermanent. And so it comes and goes outside of our ability to control it. And so the degree that we're attached to something that we don't have control over, we suffer. Actually, the attachment itself is suffering, even if it doesn't come or go at that moment. The grasping itself, but particularly if, you know, if we're attached and then the money goes... So with compassion, the Buddha laid out, he said, here's the gratification, here's the danger, and then he would say, here's the escape. You know, here's the way not to get caught in that attachment. 
to escape from the craving and the clinging that's associated with whatever's attractive, in particular money. So one escape, or partial escape, as we heard above, is to do good with the money, is to generate merit by using it well, basically. And then, like the man who lost everything and found he had a lot of friends, we might live on that merit, actually, that had been done with his his money. But there's, of course, um, you know, the other escape is to free the heart, you know, through deep dharma practice, where we let go of all craving and clinging, then money won't matter. Uh, Money won't, won't be one of the things that we can cling to. So there's... There's the sort of the worldly option of the merit-making and then the uh, spiritual option of Dharma practice. And the escape begins, for all things that are attractive, but money in particular, it begins with recognizing the limitations. We have to actually see the danger of something in order to be willing to uh, realize that the gratification is not a good enough end in itself. So here's... Um, another discourse. He's talking to some people who tell him that they're not observing the uposatha, which is a um, devotional uh, thing that lay people do, uh, taking the eight precepts once a week. And so the Buddha's somewhat admonishing them for this. And part of what he says to them is, now what do you think, lay people? Earning 100, 1,000 kahapahanas a day, I guess that's some kind of kahapanas a day, saving up his gains and living for a 100 years, would a man arrive at a great mass of wealth? Yes, Lord. Now what do you think? Would that man, because of that wealth, on account of that wealth, with that wealth as the cause, live sensitive to unalloyed bliss for a day, a night, half a day, or half a night? No, Lord. And why is that? Sensual pleasures are inconstant, hollow, false, and deceptive by nature. And then the Buddha goes on to say that if you practice, you can live uh, sensitive to unalloyed bliss for a long time. So he contrasts getting what you want with doing Dharma practice. And he's in particular pointing out that money can't buy happiness in this sutta. Or this one. Any sensual, any sensual bliss in the world, which we could put in, we could put money in that category, any sensual bliss in the world, any heavenly bliss, isn't worth one sixteenth sixteenth of the bliss of the ending of craving. So the, hence the encouragement to see wealth as something, to see it with equanimity, essentially, so that if it comes, that's fine. If it goes, that's fine. We're not asked to be rich or poor in particular as lay people. We can use money. But we should learn to relate to money with wisdom. And this is the ongoing message, not with grasping or fear or aversion or delusion. It sounds very simple, but not very easy. Because <laughs> we don't practice with it so much. I'm going to... Let me give some possible suggestions for practices. (laughs) You might try this. Um, Determine one morning to give away $20 to a stranger that day. You keep it in your pocket 
and you look for an opportunity. This is also an exercise in generosity, I've heard it said. Um, But it's also an exercise in your relationship to money because you've got this $20. You you declare in the morning that it's not yours. It's going to be somebody else's by the end of the day. And then you get to see who am I willing to give it to, where, how, what do I say, etc. It's very can be an interesting exercise because remember this is all about uh, the mind state it's about the relationship and how we and we'll we'll, re, we'll only see that when we have a change in how we're doing something here's another one get up one morning and decide that the next time whether it's that day or some later day but the next time someone asks you for money you will give it and you will give a little bit more than they ask or than your initial gut feeling. Next time someone asks me for money, I'm going to give it, and I'm going to give a little more than they ask or than I feel like. So see how this makes you feel, to be beholden, to give up some money at some indeterminate future time. This one's a little bit more intellectual, if you're not feeling like walking around thinking about money. Write down some things that you value in life. Qualities that really make life worth living. Activities, people, roles that are important to you. Um, The Dharma, your Dharma practice, your relationships, objects or memories that are important. Now, look at your budget. How much of your spending goes to further the things that you value most? What percentage go to what you value the most. So this tells you if your money is being used wisely. can be an interesting exercise to see the proportion of where we give things. And, you know, remember that supporting yourself is one of the um, uh, skillful ways to use money. So it's fine. Your house payments, etc. would go into that, keeping yourself comfortable. But how many of those five things and what proportion are they? There are also deeper practices that involve our relationship to money. Ones where we are actually challenging the fundamental notion that we're supposed to have a career, save for retirement, etc. So ones where, you know, some people take on money as an actual realm of practice. Now in the Buddha's time, um, people became monastics when they weren't going to live the conventional life. You could either do that sort of formally. I guess later in the Buddha's life there were maybe even monasteries of some kind. But there was always a large uh, opportunity to go and uh, live as kind of a wandering ascetic. There was actually a role for that in the Buddha's time. And people that uh, you know didn't feel that they fit into the conventional society would sometimes try that. In our time we actually see folks who still live as lay people. Uh, they don't become monastics and actually ordain, but um, they live as kind of lay renunciates, if you will, and are working on their relationship to all these conventional things, money included. And sometimes these folks are kind of manifest as being profoundly disinterested in the usual way of managing and relating to money. So I want to share a couple examples. Um, 
I have a Dharma friend who's also a teacher who lived for, I think it was at least two years, um, by house-sitting for Dharma people who were on long retreat or out of town or something. Because you know how people go for a month or whatever, or they go over to Thailand for you know, the winter or something. And so it was amazing to me. It was some, something was going on in his life, but he would house-sit, and then it seemed like, and he didn't have it planned out a whole year in advance, and it would seem like around the end of the time when the people were going to be coming back, something else would open. You know, he would hear that someone was going away on another retreat, and so he'd go and stay there. Maybe it was only a week at that one, but then somebody else was going on sabbatical, and he would get a place for four months. And he just did that for over two years. It was quite amazing. Many people who are uh, Dharma teachers take a series of temporary, temporary positions, temporary jobs, odd jobs of various kinds, not necessarily Dharma-related, in order to be able to you know, focus on their practice, essentially. So there's... I like to think of this as um, seeing Dharma practice as something like an art, you know, and you have this art that you're developing. You know people who have their art and they work as waiters or they work as something else because they have to do the art, you know, that's the thing that's coming. It's a similar feeling for um, some serious practitioners. So, you know, you're just doing that and the rest of life is secondary. So this is another way to have a non-traditional relationship to career and money, and you see people doing that. Yet others find that compassion overrides financial concerns. And this is one that I think about, um, turn over in my mind as a someone who's attempting to do some Dharma teaching for my life. Um, this is from a person who is a Buddhist nun, long-time practitioner, who worked for a long time in the human rights field. um, And she's also a Zen Buddhist nun and now a teacher. She's elderly now, but uh, she told me this recently. I was sort of moved by it, so I wrote it down. She said, when I was 42 years old, living in Rwanda, I was sautéing carrots and ginger in olive oil, And it occurred to me that if I kept living the way I was living, I would be poor in my old age. I realized that I could turn my back on all this and try to create some financial stability, or I could try to develop the strength to meet whatever comes. Then and now, the latter path seemed more practical. I went into this with my eyes wide open, and I have been luckier than I ever knew I could be. She now lives in Cambodia, which doesn't have a very high cost of living. And through various good fortunes from the merit she made, has a good place to live there, at least a nice little apartment. So to kind of wind up, uh, we've seen that, that money is an important part of life, as well as a potent realm of practice. And the Buddha asks us to understand and clarify our relationship to money in order that we aren't creating suffering around it. So we have to look carefully at how we, how we actually are relating to money and how we're making choices 
that might uh, move us toward correcting any imbalances, if we noticed any in our thought experiment. And people do all kinds of things in relationship to money, actually. You see all different models. There isn't just one way. I'm not glorifying one particular approach over another. I also know someone who was a Dharma teacher for a long time and is fairly wealthy and uh, retired from teaching and is finally enjoying the hermit life that he always wanted to have but didn't have earlier because he was a lay teacher and very busy. And now he's like, at last, I just sit in my house and read and write and and I'm protected by having this, you know, what came through my life. He's grateful for it. So if you see for yourself how to find freedom in relationship to money, whatever your situation is and however it ebbs and flows. I hope it will be a journey toward freedom. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.